0: Inspired the Song of Solomon. It's part of the Word of God. So we're going to look tonight at a conversation that happened between the Shulamite and the Shepherd. And let's just pray right now. Father, we thank you for the inspired, God breathed word. Lord, you're behind this word. And you've given us this book, this poem, for a reason. And it is so that we can see the relationship between Christ and his church. And we pray that tonight, Lord, you will open our eyes and feed us the good word of God. Can you just right now lift up a prayer and say, Lord, tonight, renew my mind and draw me close to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell him he loves you more than you know. All right, an hour of togetherness is what we're looking at tonight, an hour of togetherness. Now, for those of you that might be here for the first time real fast, the main characters in this poem are the Shulamite, who represents you and me and the church of Jesus Christ. The shepherd represents, who do you think? Boy, okay, let's wake up. You've been with me now for six weeks. And then we've got the court women. They represent the citizens of this world. And who is uh, Solomon in the Song of Solomon? The tempter. Now, a lot of people, that throws a lot of people. But when you read this book, Song of Solomon, there is no way that, the, that um, Solomon in this poem is a picture of Christ. There's no way. He's worldly. He's crafty. He's fleshly. He's carnal. He can't be Jesus in this poem. So Solomon is the tempter. The court women are the citizens of the world, the worldly type people who are all behind Solomon. And really a lot of the book has to do with Solomon trying to lure the Shulamite away from the shepherd to himself. And are we not every single day attacked in our minds and attacked in our faith And does not the world attempt to lure us daily away from our shepherd and into the arms of the tempter? Amen? So that's the picture. Let's look now. Last time we saw Solomon entering Jerusalem in all kinds of pomp, power, prosperity, and popularity, a typical, stereotypical worldly king. And the citizens as he entered Jerusalem had watched the display with varied reactions, all of them admiringly and the Shulamite was still Solomon's virtual prisoner and none of Solomon's display as he entered in in all this power in his carriage and horses and army and weaponry and all of this none of it impressed the Shulamite he couldn't win for losing this Shulamite is the one that got away he had 800 somewhere around 700 concubines a thousand wives good grief And yet there was one he couldn't get, and it was this Shulamite. Why couldn't he get her? Because she was totally dedicated to the shepherd, and she's a picture of you and me. While people may sell out to the world all around us, the world can't get us because we are sold out to the shepherd. Amen? Amen. So in this section called An Hour of Togetherness, the shepherd again finds a way to be with his beloved Shulamite. So once more, he he shows up, we don't know how he got there, we don't have to know, but he shows up and he tells her how much he loves her. How many of you have ever been in a wilderness time where things are really dry, really difficult, just, just really hard to put one foot in front of the other and just where is God, he seems a million miles away and then suddenly the shepherd shows up. And he doesn't take you out of all of your troubles, But he takes your hand in all your troubles, and he encourages you. And that's what's happening here, all right? So he assures her when he shows up that when the time is ripe, he will come back to carry her away. I mean, this thing, this poem smacks of the New Testament and the rapture of the church and our relationship with Jesus. It's so incredible. But he tells her, I'm going to come back someday to carry you away from all these dangers and temptations that are besetting you. And throughout chapter 4, the shepherd and the Shulamite converse together. And we're going to do this chapter tonight. Now, we see in their dialogue the love relationship that exists between Christ and his church. Okay? No doubt, their exchange is intended by the Holy Spirit to teach you and me how we should talk to our shepherd and how he talks to us. We can divide their conversation together in chapter four into four steps. We're gonna notice the the personal radiance of the Shulamite, then the passionate response of the Shulamite, then the pilgrim responsibilities of the Shulamite, and finally, the promised rapture of the Shulamite. Amen. Now, chapter four opens with the shepherd speaking of her personal radiance. Now, guys, I'm gonna tell you, this shepherd is going to put us all us guys to shame, because this guy knows how to talk romantic. This guy is a romantic. Of course, he's a picture of Jesus, but just you just wish you could come up with some of the things he says. Are you ready? Imagine you married guys on your way home tonight, just turning to your wife and saying, "Behold." You are fair, my love. Behold, you are. F- I think you would be. I think. I think you would be carrying a woman who has fainted to the hospital. <laughs> Look at all you guys blushing. It's, I wish you could see what I see. So, does he not know how to talk to a woman? Come on. Come on, guys. Give me an amen. Amen. Some of you want to say, oh, me. (laughs) All right. Behold, you are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair. Now, I'm echoing a little bit here, Tyler, for some reason. Thank you. Behold, you are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair. Now, one translator puts it this way. Thou art fair, my dear, so fair. That's exactly what Jesus thinks of his church. Now, can you believe me when I tell you that? Because this is a picture of Christ and his church. So when Jesus looks at you and me, can you even believe that he says to you and to me, behold, you are fair, my love. You are fair. See, I didn't think he looked at me that way. I thought he looked at me disappointed, disapprovingly, because I mess up so much and I'm not everything I ought to be. I can't even picture him talking to me that way, but he does. It's reflected right here. Now, when the Lord looks at us, he does not see the blotches and the blemishes that so often characterize us now. He doesn't see them. According to Ephesians five twenty-seven, he sees us without blemish or any such thing. That's how he sees us. It's as I preached before. If you put on sunglasses and they're green, they see, you, you know, you see green. These blue ones, you see blue. You put on red, you see red. Jesus has on red sun, S-O-N, glasses. He sees us through the blood. So because he sees us through the blood, he is able to say, behold, thou art fair, my love. He doesn't see the blemishes. He really doesn't. That's why we can say there's therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Jesus Christ. He sees no blemish, no such thing. Then he goes on to describe in loving detail just what he saw when looking at the Shulamite. And all of these could be a hallmark card. First, he talks about her mystery. Look what he says in 4, verse 1. He says, you have dove's eyes behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats going down from Mount Gilead. Oh, gosh. Okay. But I want you to notice the dove's eyes because notice the dove's eyes are behind the veil. Middle Eastern women wore this veil. There was a mystery behind Middle Eastern women intentionally. And you could see the eyes, but they were behind a veil. So there was a a mysterious element. And he's saying, when I look at you, your eyes from beneath that veil look like dove's eyes to me. He's entranced by her eyes. Now the eye has been called the index of the soul, the window to the soul. It reflects your eyes, love, hate, hope, Fear. Your eyes betray what is going on in your heart. A dove's eyes are its most prominent feature. You know, I feed birds every morning and I sit out there with my Bible and I feed the birds. And most of them are, are doves. And they have the most innocent, beautiful, round eyes. They are the most distinctive thing about that dove. And that's what he's saying. The dove in Scripture symbolizes the Holy Spirit. Now, what is going on here? what does Jesus see when he looks at you and me? Are you ready? He sees dove's eyes. What do I mean by that? When we got saved, we got filled with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, the dove, is living inside of us. And in the same way that hate or lust or fear can reflect through your eyes, can betray what's in your heart, when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit gives you dove's eyes. When Jesus looks at us, he sees the dove inside of us emanating out of our eyes. Have you ever noticed when somebody is really spirit-filled and they walk up to you, it just shoots out of their eyes, dove's eyes? Jesus has the joy of seeing the Holy Spirit indwelling the believer to the extent that the believer's eyes are filled with the presence of the dove. Jesus paid the highest price imaginable, his blood, so that we could be forgiven born again and filled with the Holy Spirit from whom we had been separated. But once redeemed, the Spirit now comes to live back inside of us, which was God's original intent. And so He is seen in our eyes. Isn't that beautiful? You have dove's eyes and her hair is like a flock of goats. What does that mean? The Bible speaks of the woman's hair being her glory. Tells the guys, you're going to lose it. Tells the girls, it's your glory. And how it reveals the special majesty with which God has crowned her. That's why the woman covers her in the Old Testament. I mean, in the New Testament, in the first century, you don't have to do that now. But the whole idea of the woman covering her head was because of her hair and her being under authority. Okay? So Jesus sees the majesty that he has bestowed on every one of us. He has bestowed majesty on his children. We are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a called out people, a chosen generation, that we would show forth his praises who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. So the Lord has added a certain majesty to his people. And that's what is reflected here in the Shulamites' hair. Now next, the shepherd mentions her Magnificence. Now get ready. He's going to talk about her teeth. When was the last time somebody came up to you and said, man, you have great teeth. But he does this. Look here. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn sheep, which have come up from the washing, every one of which bears twins. I don't know what that means. And none is barren among them. In other words, she didn't have any missing teeth. Now, he couldn't have said any of this if this woman had not had perfect teeth. But since she had perfect teeth, he's going to brag on it. In his eyes, and here's really the picture, all comedy aside, this Shulamite to the shepherd is the picture of beauty. So he's, he's talking about how her, her smile is an incredible smile the Shulamite's teeth were perfect. She could smile a perfect smile. There was nothing, catch this, to mar her smile. Now here's the question. She was able to smile gloriously, fully, without self-consciousness. There was nothing that marred her being able to be happy and show a joyful smile. And here's the question. Is there anything that mars our smile? Seriously. Is there anything in our life that is taking the joy of the Lord away from us and marring our smile that's really the question you come away with here because her smile was perfect photogenic beautiful okay one of the greatest testimonies a believer has is a smiling countenance i believe god's greatest billboard is your face everywhere you go i don't think there's anything more irresistible than joy on a christian that's why the devil's always trying to steal your joy Because when a Christian has joy and they go out in public with it, and it's just that joy that comes from being saved, from being forgiven, from the weight and the load of sin being taken off of you, from being filled with his spirit, from being rejoined to your maker, there is a joy that comes to the believer. And when you go out in public with that joy, I believe it is the most irresistible quality to being a Christian. I've shared with you my testimony last weekend about how the first worship session I walked into. All of them had joy, and it provoked me to jealousy. It's what made me say, Lord, if I can have that, I'll give up anything. What did I want? I wanted the unabated, undiluted joy that I saw on those young people in that Bible study. Joy is magnetic. A smiling countenance. That's why I tell you, when you leave church here on Sunday, you go off to a restaurant. If you're all sour, don't tell them you were here. But if you've got the joy of the Lord, tell them where you've been. Because we ought to have joy. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. The joy of the Lord will always show itself in an infectious smile. If you've got the Lord's joy, you can't help but smile. So everybody smile at me. One, two, three. Okay. Some of you, your face, had a hard time remembering what that felt like. (laughs) Joy, can we say that together? Now next he mentions her mouth. He says, Your lips are like a strand of scarlet, and your mouth is lovely. Is this guy romantic or what? This is Jesus. Your temples behind your veil. Are like a piece of pomegranate. Now next to the eyes, the mouth is the most expressive part of the face. It can reveal hardness, tenderness, sorrow, mirth, pain, surprise, humor, or horror. A mere turning of the corners of the mouth can turn a smile into a scowl. Do you know that it takes way more muscles to frown than it does to smile? And if you frown too much, your face will fix that way. That ought to make some of you women say, uh-oh. Because if if you're always frowning, it it fixes your face that way. But if you're always smiling, it it, it, it is what shapes your face in the years to come. And it takes way less muscles to smile. Now the shepherd looks at this at his beloved's mouth and all he saw was beauty. It reminded him of a crimson cord. Now, a crimson cord, uh, also scarlet thread. When you, I read the story this morning of the uh, spies that went over into Jericho to spy it out, and there was two of them, and they went into Rahab the harlot's house, and she hid them, and they, they cut a covenant together. They said, look, um, she said to them, I know the fear of you is, is over all the land, and you're going to come, and you're going to take over Jericho, and it's going to be a slaughter. But please remember me and my family, they said to her, if you put a scarlet thread out the window, when we come to town, we will see that scarlet thread. And if you remain in the house and your family remains in the house, you and your family will be spared when we see the scarlet thread. That is not by mistake. That is a picture of the blood of Jesus, that when the judgment of God begins to roll, that when the judgment of God sees the scarlet thread, the blood of Jesus over the window of your heart, then you are spared the judgment. Now, the same thought here is this crimson cord. He says, he uses the phrase crimson cord. And this is what the Lord would see on His church. A smile of peace and a smile of joy due to the crimson cord, the redemption from His shed blood. It's powerful stuff. Uh, You know, if you're saved and you know it, say amen. amen. Boy, that was the best amen I've gotten out of them in a long time. Try that again. Now, the shepherd goes on to mention her might next. Look what he says. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built for an armory on which hang a thousand bucklers, all shields of mighty men. Now, notice the verbiage there, a thousand bucklers. What in the world is that? The shepherd saw around the neck of his beloved a string of coins like Eastern women wore. And those coins may or may not have been valuable. It didn't really matter because they were very, very valuable to her of infinite worth to the Shulamite because they symbolized her betrothal like an engagement ring. When when a woman gets engaged in America, she gets an engagement ring. Back then, there was a necklace of coins that was put on the woman, and it said, I am betrothed, I am taken, I am spoken for. Now, what is he saying here by that? The shepherd looked at those coins hanging around her neck and he saw them as shields hung on the smooth wall of an armory. That's what came to his mind. Why? Because those coins acted like protectors. What does a shield do? It protects you from arrows and spears and whatnot. So he says, those coins are a picture of your might. What kind of might? Her might, her ability to say no, to the tempter because I am spoken for. So let the tempter come knocking. Let Solomon do his best to woo me and seduce me and lure me and convince me. But I've got these coins and these coins are like shields to my shepherd because they ward off the temptations like a shield would ward off an arrow. They told would-be suitors that she was spoken for. Her might was due to her loyalty to the shepherd. Folks, the more we are loyal to him, the mightier we are. Let me tell you something. And and, and when you say, you know, I am my beloved and he is mine, and his banner over me is love, when we walk with that committed covenant relationship with Jesus, it makes us mighty in our ability to say no to the world when everyone else drops like flies because they're not in covenant with Jesus. Salvation is not just getting your ticket to heaven someday. Salvation means you have entered into a covenant relationship as the Shulamite had with the great shepherd of the sheep, Jesus Christ, the son of God. And we are not just gonna go to heaven one day, but we are his right now and he is ours and we are in covenant with him, and we wear upon ourselves, as it were, those coins. And that covenant wards off the fiery arrows of the enemy and helps us to be mighty in spirit. And guess what the betrothal gift given to us by Jesus is? Jesus gave us the Holy Spirit. The Shulamite had the coins. A a woman today would have an engagement ring, but guess what? We've got an engagement ring and we've got coins, and it's called the Holy Spirit of the living God. He's called the earnest of our inheritance. When you and I got saved, Jesus slipped that ring on you and me. He dropped that necklace of coins around us. He put within us the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit says, says, taken, 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 bought, paid for set aside only for the shepherd. So the earnest of our inheritance is the Holy Spirit. Think of the most incredible experience you've ever had with the Holy Spirit. And then multiply it by a hundred to the oomph power. And that's what you're going to experience in glory. This is only a down payment of what's coming. Hmm. I just had Holy Ghost bumps just came all over me. <laughs> I'm telling you. So we're spoken for. Everybody in here, can you say with me spoken for"? spoken for? And you've got the engagement ring on. The Spirit of God in our hearts is but the down payment of what is coming. In the meantime, the Holy Spirit is our protector in this world against the unwanted advances of the enemy. We are already spoken for. Now he goes on. Finally, the shepherd mentions the Shulamites' maturity. Verse 5. He says, Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle, which feed among the lilies. Now here's what's going on. He's looking at her. The shepherd sees her noble shape, carefully veiled behind the long tresses of her hair and the flowing contours of her veil. You know what he sees? Here's the message. A mature grown woman. And he's completely captivated. What do you think Jesus wants in you and me? Paul says, I'm praying, I'm interceding until Christ be formed in you. And then he described it, until we all come under the fullness of the stature of Christ. That's maturity. So what he sees in this Shulamite is what the Lord is looking for in us, where we grow up. We come out of childhood, like Paul said, no longer children, tossed to and fro by every sleight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. He said, but we would grow up into him in the fullness of the stature of Christ. In another place, Paul said, when I became a man, I put away childish things. When I became a full-grown adult, I put away childish stuff. What the shepherd is seeing here is a reflection of what Christ is wanting in his bride. He wants maturity. He wants adulthood. He wants somebody who has grown up And I got good news for you. It takes time to grow up, to become fully developed. When I was a teenager, or not a teenager, in elementary school, as all of you probably did, we had science class. And in the science class, we are all given a little pot of dirt and a few seeds. And we dropped the seeds, covered it up with dirt, and then we watered it every day. And we were told, that's going to come out of there before long. Now, my problem was, I couldn't believe that. So I kept digging up my seeds. When the teacher wasn't looking, I'd go in there and I'd dig it up and look to see if anything was happening, because I, I saw nothing. And what I did was I, I ruined my harvest because I kept digging up the seed. What I didn't understand is you can't make something grow faster than God has programmed it to grow. All you can do is put it in the right environment. Sun, water, good dirt. But other than that, it is God. Paul said, one sows, another waters, but only God gives the increase. So, so when it comes to you and I growing spiritually, all we can do is give the seed of Jesus within us the right environment. Get in that Bible every day. Spend time with Him, sunshine. Get into the Word, water. Get into fellowship, fertilizer. But the growth will come as God has programmed it to grow. You can't make it. You can't grab that plant and pull it and make it grow. You'll kill it. It takes time for a flower to blossom. It takes time for a tree to grow. And for a believer in Christ to become fully developed in the fullness of the stature of Christ, it takes time. So don't get disappointed or discouraged with yourself. If you're doing the right things to give it the right environment, you will grow. You will grow. Now the good news is that God is never in a hurry whether he's in, whether it be in nature or the work of grace on the hearts of his children. The Holy Spirit is patiently bringing the church into maturity. As the shepherd saw the radiance of the Shulamite, the Lord Jesus sees the radiance of his church. Amen? Do you believe that the Lord is blessed when he looks at his church here tonight? Sure, he looks at us through the blood. And so we've seen the Shulamite's personal radiance. Next, we're going to see Her passionate response to the shepherd. Look at what all he just said to her. How many of you ladies can say, I'd have a passionate response? Really? Come on, ladies. Amen. You would at least say, Oh, that's so sweet. So she has a response to all of these incredibly romantic things she just heard. She talks about two things the morning and a mountain. Verse six, she says, Until, here's her response, until the day breaks and the shadows flee away. I will go my way to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. And what does that mean? First, her heart was occupied with the coming day. Though now she was in Solomon's gilded prison, he could not keep her forever. And folks, we will not be in this world forever. We will not be. Likewise, we're in a dark world today of perversion and godlessness and it's only getting darker and only getting more perverse. We are watching deviancy defined down by the hour. But his real church, true church, is growing into the fullness of the stature of Christ and his word to us is, hang on because the day is coming when I'm taking you out. Look what he says. She says, but soon, soon for us the day will break and the shadows will flee away. This is not going to last forever. This too shall pass. Now the mountains of myrrh and the hills of frankincense, she mentions, they don't exist anywhere on earth. Myrrh and frankincense are two of the gifts the wise men brought to baby Jesus. You remember that? They brought frankincense and myrrh. They represent Jesus' death on the cross. Again, the Holy Spirit gave this poem as much as He gave us Hebrews or the book of John. Okay? So when the Holy Spirit uses the verbiage and the picture of myrrh and frankincense, you think He knew what He was doing? It points to the crucifixion of Christ. It points to the resurrected Christ. Myrrh and frankincense represent His death on the cross. One day, Because of his death on the cross, we will climb those everlasting hills of frankincense and breathe forever the fragrance of the myrrh in heaven. So we have the personal radiance and the passionate response of the Shulamite. She said, I can't wait to be delivered from here. And until then, I am focusing on what you have done for me. And it's by what you have done for me that I am one day going to be taken out. Now, next, we come to her pilgrim responsibility. In other words, what's her responsibility while she journeys on, waiting for the shepherd to appear and actually finally deliver her? She's in Solomon's pavilion. She is not where she would rather be. She'd rather be in the fields again with the shepherd, but she's not. She has been taken. She is in a picture of the world, and Solomon is a picture of the tempter, and she is in a battle. So what is her responsibility as a pilgrim or a journeyer while this is her case? The shepherd, though yet away in a distant place, is fully aware of the dangers and the temptations assailing the Shulamite in Solomon's court. Both fear and flattery are being used against her. So the shepherd now talks to her about five things to aid her in her pilgrimage. Her person, her position, her passion, her protection, and her perfection. He begins with her person. Here's what he says again. Here he goes again. You are all fair, my love, and there's not a spot in you. Now, church, I want you to really catch this because it is so important that we understand our position in Christ. Our position in Christ is guiltless, forgiven, redeemed, justified, justified, all right? We are spotless because of the blood of Jesus. And and Paul talked about keeping and maintaining a clear conscience, because if you don't have a clear conscience, it's going to take you down in the moment of warfare. You've got to maintain a clear conscience. And one of the ways we keep a clear conscience is refusing to let the devil condemn us when we know we're forgiven. So it's very important that she understand here while she's in Solomon's pavilion and in this temptation and in this battle, her person, how he sees her. Because of his love for her, the shepherd sees only spotless beauty and perfection. And that's how Christ sees us, his church, his bride. Paul the apostle tells us that Jesus sees us not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. It's so important in our own spiritual journey to keep in mind our purity in the eyes of our great shepherd. He died so that he could look at us and say, thou art fair, my love. I see no spot in you. Next, he talks of her position, and it is a very perilous position. The shepherd knows even better than her the danger she is in. So he first speaks to her about the heights she must climb by faith. Look at what he says, come with me. Now I want everybody to say that together, okay? Come with me. Now when Jesus says that to you and to me, he said, I want you to come up higher. I want you to come with me. Every single day of our life when we awaken as a redeemed child of God, Jesus is saying to us, come with me today. Walk with me lay hold of me by faith. He says, come with me from Lebanon, my spouse. Come with me from Lebanon. What's he doing? He's calling her to higher ground while she is in the world, battling the enemy, fighting the court women, and waiting for the return of her king, her shepherd. He's calling her to higher ground. Come with me, he wanted to accomplish exactly what Jesus wants to accomplish in us when we are told to set our affections on things above and not on things of this earth, for you are dead and your life is hidden with Christ in God. It matters where your focus is. He is dealing with her focus. He said, I don't want you focusing on Solomon, the tempter. I don't want you focusing on the court women who are mocking you and don't understand your faith. I want you focusing me. I want you to come with me. I want you to set your sights unto me. What did Hebrews say? Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross in despising the shame it is now set down at the right hand of the throne of God. How did Jesus endure the cross? He looked at what was coming. he had his focus, he, he, he had his focus on what was beyond the cross, a redeemed bride, a resurrected savior who is now Lord of Lords, king of Kings, coming back one day and history will end at his feet. He saw that, who for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. So all he's saying is Shulamite, my bride, my dear, my love, my fair one, get your eyes off of these things that are around you and put them on me. He's saying, though you're in difficult circumstances, place your faith, plant your faith in higher ground. Then he named some key locations. In these locations, the word of God constantly amazes me. He said, I want you to look from the top of Amana, from the top of Senor, and I'm not sure about these pronunciations, but it doesn't matter. Look from the top of Amana, from the top of senir or Sener, and Hermon. Take a couple of these. Amana means constancy, integrity, truth. It's in the place of integrity and truth that we are able to walk on higher ground. He said, he's saying to her, my fair one, my love, my Shulamite, while you're in Solomon's pavilion... And before I have come to take you out, I want you walking in the integrity of your heart. I want you to live a life of integrity. In other words, he's saying to her, character matters. Then he mentions senior or center, S-E-N-I-R. Senior means bear the lamp. Bear the lamp. Even in her difficult circumstances, she was to bear the lamp of integrity and faithfulness to the shepherd. Can everybody say with me, bear the lamp? What do we do while we're still on this earth? And there is a tempter, and there are worldly people all around us, and godlessness seems to be reigning, and deviancy is being defined down, and it seems to be getting darker and darker. And as Jeremiah the prophet said, the shadows of the evening are lengthening. What do we do? Well, we walk in the integrity of Christ's character and we bear the lamp. We bear the lamp. Jesus said to us, you are the light of the world. Let your light so shine that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. In other words, Jesus said, bear the lamp. Occupy till I come. Walk in integrity, Shulamite, and bear the lamp. Mm. That's our responsibility in our pilgrimage on this earth. That's our responsibility. Walk in integrity and bear the lamp. And that's what Turning Point intends to do. We're going to walk in integrity and we're going to bear the lamp. We're going to hold it up so high. I want one of those Walmart is opening next week spotlights. You ever seen one of those things? You're driving down the road and there is this huge light cutting through the night. It seems to reach to the moon. You go, what in the world is that? And it's just this huge spotlight because Walmart's opening next week. I want one of those Walmart spotlights here. And I want to shine the light into the night. Bear the lamp. Knowing some of you, you're going to go find one and bring it. I know you are. then here the shepherd acknowledges. He, 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 he says, you're right. You are surrounded with danger. Look what he says. Come with me from Lebanon, my spouse. Come with me from the lion's dens, from the mountains of the leopards. You are surrounded by lions, my love, and leopards. Solomon was lion-like in his comportment, and so is the devil. 1 Peter 5 says, your enemy, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. The the Greek there is literally eat alive. So what does the Bible say? The devil's lion-like. And here's the shepherd saying, I understand you're in a den of lions. But Solomon was also like a leopard in his outward beauty. He inherited, there's no question about it, he inherited major looks from his dad and his mother Bathsheba he was a GQ looker. That's right. But you know what? Inside of that GQ looker was an animal that would tear her to pieces if she yielded. Let me tell you something, folks. Sometimes beauty hides the most vicious of hearts. Matter of fact, sometimes because somebody is so pretty or so handsome, doors open for them. People treat them differently, and it goes to their head. And they begin thinking more of themselves than they ought to. And they get proud. And sometimes you'll see the most beautiful or handsome people do the most wicked things. You know, a teenager wrote one time and said, I wish I wasn't so ugly. I wish I had looks. Because everywhere I go, I'm treated differently. And, and my question was this. But let me ask you a question. What would you do with it if you had looks? Would you glorify God with it? You know what a temptation it is for some of these people who are born so attractive? you got to humble yourself before God. And this Solomon, it, even his hair, his hair, I forget how many pounds it weighed. This guy had a mane. But it all went to his head. He was a legend in his own mind. It all went to him. And he couldn't handle it. And very few people can handle really attractive looks. So there was an animal inside this guy, and it was a leopard. It was a lion. And the shepherd knew it. So she must keep her heart firmly fixed on her beloved and in spirit maintain fellowship with him lest she be eaten alive by this lion and this leopard. And folks, it's the same with you and me. Satan's best temptations come wrapped in beauty. That's his job. It's not a sin to be attractive. But I'm saying he makes wrong look beautiful. He makes sin look reasonable. Matter of fact, I think one of Satan's favorite phrases is, let's let's just sit down and reason about this. So, of course, it's going to come to you in a way that appeals to the lust of your eye and the lust of your flesh and the pride of life. And that's exactly how Solomon came to her. We all saw her in a lion's den, you and me. As we just quoted, your adversary, the devil, like a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour. Peter says, Here's what you do resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the exact same kind of sufferings as you are. And how do we resist him steadfast in the faith? By doing what the Shulamite was told to do you come away with me, get your focus on me, your shepherd. Focus and fix your eyes on me and fellowship with me. Though I am apart from you physically, I'm with you in the spirit. Her person and her position have been addressed. Next, the shepherd speaks to her passion. The shepherd talked about the love he knew she had for him. What better way to protect herself from Solomon's temptations than the love she had for him? Verse 9, you have ravished my heart. This is the shepherd talking to her. You have ravished my heart, my sister, my spouse. My spouse. You have ravished my heart with one look of your eyes, with one wink or link of your necklace. (laughs) He's saying, I'm gone. I have never known a love like yours. It is beyond comparison. Now, watch this church. Did you know that Jesus treasures every single expression of your love towards Him like that? We're in a love relationship. So right now let's just lift your hand and just let him say lord i do love you and do you know what that means to him do you you know what that means to him can you believe that when you do that he says oh you have ravished my heart my sister my spouse now can you imagine the lord speaking to you this way in this kind of love language Hello? He does. Verse 10 How fair is your love, my sister, my spouse? How much better than wine is your love and the scent of your perfumes than all spices? Their relationship is pure because what does he call her? His sister. So he's saying by calling her the si- his sister, our relationship is pure. Siblings. But he also calls her my spouse. And that means there was not just purity, but there was passion. But it was passion with barriers. It was passion with lines in the sand. Here he goes again, verse 11. your lips, O my spouse, drip as the honeycomb. Honey and milk are under your tongue. And the fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. He's saying her love was sweet like a honeycomb. When somebody loves you, it's sweet like a honeycomb. Satisfying like honey and milk and stimulating like Lebanon, which was the home of the great cedar trees. And when you looked at those forests of cedars, it took your breath away. He said, that's the way I feel when I look at you. Can you even imagine that this is what our Lord Jesus Christ, our love for him means to him? come on, church. Think about that. I want you to go home thinking about that. That's what our love means to him. Her person, her position, her passion have all been addressed. Next, the shepherd speaks to her protection. Look what he says, verse 12. A garden enclosed is my sister, my spouse. A spring shut up, a fountain sealed. Notice the words, enclosed, shut up, sealed. She is a garden enclosed. Her beauty was not For just anyone, it was closed off only for him, enclosed. She's a spring shut up. She was like a flowing stream of endless bounty, but her generosity had its bounds. He had first claims on her. So though she was a fountain, it was shut up. That is, it had boundaries, and they were reserved for him. And then she was a fountain. Like a fountain, she was effervescent. She was overflowing. She was attractive. This, This girl had personality charisma. But again, the fountain had a seal upon it. The shepherd was first and all others were trespassing. And when we read that description of her, that's exactly the way the church, the Shulamite of the New Testament ought to be. We have all this love and this fountain of life flowing up out of us by the Holy Spirit. We are God's redeemed, yet all that we have is set aside and sealed up and reserved for him. Then finally, the shepherd spoke of her perfections. And I'm just going to read these next few verses. Your plants are an orchard of pomegranates with pleasant fruits and fragrant henna with spikenard, spikenard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes, with all the chief spices, a fountain of gardens, a well of waters, and streams from Lebanon. Let me just sum this up She was the bomb. Now, again, can you believe me when I say, when Jesus looks at his real, true, redeemed church, in his eyes, we're the bomb. All right? Now, just before the shepherd ends their tryst, He whispers to her a few words about the greatest and the brightest hope of all, the promised rapture of the Shulamite, and I'll deal with that next time. Can we stand together? Next week, we're going to read about the rapture of the church revealed in the Song of Solomon. Amen. Can we just go to the Lord? I just feel like we need to tell him we love him tonight. We've seen this Shulamite and the shepherd sharing such incredible words back and forth between each other. We've seen how her words to him moved him and blessed him. And the Bible says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. So can we just lift our hands towards our great shepherd and as the New Testament Shulamite, the church of Jesus Christ, Can we just begin to tell him we love him? Go ahead and just begin to tell the Lord. Just go ahead and get verbal with the Lord and tell
1: him. For he is Lord. He is Lord.
0: and tell him you love him. Thank you, Lord. It up and worship him a little bit more. Say, you are Lord. Yes, you are Lord. Love the Lord tonight. Love him. Thank you. You are Lord. You have risen from the dead. Ciao, ciao.